Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. For some 200 years now, Pentateuchal scholarship has been dominated by the documentary Hypothesis, a paradigm made popular by Julius Wilhausen. Recent decades, however, have seen mounting critiques of the old paradigm from a variety of specializations, not only in biblical studies, but also in the fields of Assyriology, legal history, and linguistics. In a recent international meeting, scholars across these fields came together and presented papers, each one calling for a paradigm change in Pentateuchal research. Join us as we speak with one of those scholars, Dr. Richard Averbeck, about his contribution to paradigm change in Pentateuchal research. His chapter is titled, Reading the Torah in a Better Way. You're listening to New Books in Biblical Studies, and I'm Michael Morales, your host. Richard Averbeck teaches at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. His areas of expertise include Old Testament, especially the Pentateuch, ancient Near Eastern history and languages, Old Testament criticism, Hebrew, and biblical counseling. He's a member of the Evangelical Theological Society, the Institute for Biblical Research, the American Oriental Society, the American Schools of Oriental Research, and the Society of Biblical Literature. Among his many publications, Averbeck has contributed articles to Evangelical Dictionary of Biblical Theology, Faith, Tradition, and History, Cracking the Old Testament Codes, Guide to Interpreting Old Testament Literary Forms, the New International Dictionary of Old Testament Theology and Exegesis, and Dictionary of the Old Testament Pentateuch. He's currently committed to several writing projects, including The Old Testament Law and the Christian, A Rest for the People of God, Reading the Old Testament for the Christian Life, and A Commentary on Leviticus. Dick, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm looking forward to it. Would you begin by explaining for our audience the documentary hypothesis and how it has dominated studies in the Pentateuch? Well, the documentary hypothesis, people call it various things. It's it's back in the 1800s, the 19th century. Uh, it was called the new documentary hypothesis because it had so much background in the previous centuries. But it's often called, the, for example, the JEDP theory for the supposed background of the of the J source, which is the Yahwist, uh, and uh, and uh, that is the oldest source. Then the E source for the Elohist, using these are different names of God, and then uh, the, the D source, which is Deuteronomy, and then the P source, which is the priestly material, like in the Book of Leviticus. Um, and it runs through the narrative shape too, like the genealogies in Genesis one. And in Genesis uh, and and on through into Exodus and so on, these are generally considered to be priestly material and added in by the later priestly writer, 
say in the 500s BC, long after any supposed Moses. There's an assumption that there is no Moses, generally speaking, in the field, although some would say there could have been a Moses somehow. Uh, so that's the the documentary hypothesis that dominated for a long time since the 1800s uh, connected with Julius Wellhausen. So early in the 1900s, uh, Hermann Gunkel, another scholar, established what we call form criticism, which mm, the purpose of it was to go back behind the sources that Wellhausen had isolated, J-E-D-N-P, and look at the oral background behind them. How did they come into being? And so this was based upon looking at each particular unit, each story, and seeing what kind of cultic background they came from. We we'll often hear about Zitzumleben, the situation in life, and things like this. So it's very much anchored in the oral, and that developed then into what uh, into what we call tradition history, where the concept of how the text came together was taking those oral traditions and then developing the tradition history to such a point that you build up these traditions as whole sets of stories. Then redaction comes along and it's put together in writing under the influence of a theologically uh, weighted writer who puts it together according to his theological concerns. This developed then uh, into another system of looking at how the Pentateuch came together and it has come to be a in competition with a newer form of the documentary hypothesis the neo-documentary uh, hypothesis, which is going back a lot to Wellhausen, but also correcting some of the mistakes that Wellhausen made, but trying to do basically the same thing, even more extreme sometimes in Wellhausen's dividing up of the sources. And that is now the neo-documentary hypothesis. The other process that starts with Gunkel and goes through tradition history and uh, redaction criticism that's taken to be a non-documentary hypothesis on the composition of the Pentateuch. And there it's built up over time through redactors in such a way. And these two neo-documentary and redactional uh, uh, approaches, uh, approaches are now largely in competition with one another in the field. That's basically what's going on up to date here in the uh, discussion of uh, composition of the Pentateuch. Now, tell us about some of the growing criticism against the documentary hypothesis. What are some of its flaws? Yeah, this is one of the main purposes of the book was to show the flaws in that system, uh, even in its places where it thinks it's so powerful and useful. And so, for example, in the flood story. But one of the things that has become clear, it's very circular. Uh, in order for it to work, you have to posit something and then you take the data and come back around to prove that when that's begging the question. And so what happens is there's a hypothesis that comes out of it. Now, it's it's presumably uh, based upon the text as it stands. There, The theory is the text as it stands is not really readable. It's not really a readable text. But there's a lot of cases in which when you do the, the analysis of why they think it's not readable, does not stand up under scrutiny. And that's one of the things I talked about in my essay in the book. So it's uh, a lot of it like that. Also, 
they tend to use modern literary sensitivities to decide what's coherent and what's not, when really it was not written in the modern time. It was written in ancient time according to their literary sensitivities. And so we can't impose our modern ones on it. We have to see how it was read, how it would have been read, how it would have been written in the ancient world, and that requires comparing ancient Near Eastern materials. And so there's a lot of reasons why people have been pushing back on the documentary hypothesis and the redaction theory in terms of the composition of the Pentateuch. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Dick, tell us about how this book, Paradigm Change and Pentateuchal Research, came together. Uh, well, what happened was uh, Benjamin Kilcair, a really good young scholar at Basel, in Basel, uh, Switzerland, he uh, did a really fine dissertation uh, on the composition of the Pentateuch where he showed how the arguments for the compos composition of the Pentateuch really work in reverse of the theory. Uh, and he's been working on this for a long time, and, and he got in contact with uh, the other scholars, uh, especially, especially Matthias Armgard, and they um, uh, decided that they were going to put this together uh, as a project, as an international project, pulling together people who see these problems clearly and and are willing to really work on this together as a team. And so they pulled together a team. Uh, and that was what the conference was all about. It's also connected to a similar project being done at Andrews University in Michigan, in which uh, uh, a number of scholars, and some of the scholars, uh, including myself, going to both of these conferences and their ongoing conferences. And so what's happening is that there's kind of a team being built of people who are just coming out and saying, okay, they, for this reason, these approaches don't work. We have to do a paradigm change. We have to change how we think. Be, going back to Kuhn's uh, structure of scientific revolutions and the whole idea of paradigm changes in how science is done and so on. And so the idea is to use that concept to think about what needs to happen in Pentateuchal studies, especially the composition of the Pentateuch. What impressed me about the contributions in this book is the great diversity. These are not all scholars in the same field or of the same stripe, are they? No, this is coming from all different kinds of directions and perspectives, and uh, we enjoy that together. And uh, this has become a really interesting environment for us to become good friends, many of us not knowing each other previously, 
and uh, just building uh, a kind of uh, interactive context where we challenge what we do and so on. And one of the concerns I think that's central to, to what we're doing is, yes, we need to show the fallacies of the theories, the compositional theories uh, that have been used in common biblical scholarship in the academy. But we also need to come back around and um, actually do our own work. So if it wasn't composed that way, how was it composed? And therefore think about a positive approach to how the text actually did come into being. How did it get shaped into the form that we now have it in? So not just negative criticism, but positive proposals about if that doesn't work, if that's not sufficient, if that's misleading, and what is a good way to move forward in this discussion? Now let's talk about your contribution to this volume. Your chapter is titled, Reading the Torah in a Better Way. How about first telling us about some of the wrong ways to read the Torah? Well, some of the wrong ways uh, might be uh, just what we were talking about in terms of the documentary hypothesis and redaction theory and their weaknesses and what they tend to impose on the text. They, 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 one of the things that has frustrated me is they tend to see problems where there are none. And the, the result is they create more problems than the text does in the way that they study the text. So what, we're, what I'm trying to do in that article is show that first in the earlier part of the article is to show um, how that's what's happening. Uh, and so I even take on one of the cases um, by a good scholar in the field uh, who, where this particular passage in Exodus 25, uh, 24 and 25 is said to be unreadable as it stands. Well, quite frankly, uh, I take on the details of the discussion and go through, there's no good reason to see this as unreadable. And um, the reason that's important it's because this is said by them to be the reason why they apply documentary and redactional approaches to the text of the sort that are being used today is because it's not readable as it is. So we have to see how it was composed to end up not being readable. Well, this cr creates uh, a real uh, uh, problem in when, when the fact of the matter is that the text may well be readable and in fact is readable <laughs> Uh, in, 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 in terms of how the ancient writers would have written and just in terms of just looking at the logic of a passage um, and its context. So this is, this is one of the main um, um, background problems that I see that has led me to be involved in this discussion. Uh, I think I want to you know, clarify here. These people that use these methods are very bright people. They're very intelligent the concern that I have for them and for the work as a whole is that uh, I think they're captured by a methodology uh, in the way they do their work, and they do it very intelligently, but they're captured by a methodology that just doesn't work. And therefore, they're kind of running in some circles. And the result is that their work uh, is, I think, progressively losing its edge uh, on the field. That's one of the reasons why back even in the 1970s and 80s, 
there was the arise of this narrative approach, this approach to reading the Bible in a literary way. Uh, uh, Robert Alter and others, Adela Berlin and so on, where they're, oh, they see that a lot of the dividing up of the text that's being done by these methods just isn't literarily reasonable. And that became competition for a while within the field. And now they're kind of bringing it together with these compositional theories. Uh, and the world has the world of biblical scholarship in the academy has become more and more pluralistic in the way that it works. So what sort of paradigm shift do you propose for reading the Torah? Well, what I came upon in my work on this was some material uh, in, that relates to the patriarchal narratives, Genesis 12 through 50 in the book of uh, – in which you have the Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph stories. What I uh, – one of the things that's really quite clear from the text is that the patriarchs worked in a family clan world. They lived in a family clan environment. It wasn't under a particular king or anything like this. It wasn't an empire it was more of a kinship-based culture. And in fact, the patriarchs would have been what we might call uh, enclosed nomadic sheiks. They were, they were sheiks of their clan groups and so on. And uh, this comes out in the stories in Genesis. And we have a lot of background material from the ancient Near East that supports this relationship between tribal clan groups in the midst of and in relationship to the urban centers around them. And they would have a lot of uh, connections to those urban centers, but also be their separate groups. There would even be some family members in the clan context, some in the urban areas. There's a lot of interaction discussions that go on around this material that we have from Mari and other places uh, early in the old, in the ancient Near Eastern context. And it's not just those texts, but text before and after. We know that this is a common thing and that it endures down even to today. And that was why it was attractive to me to think about, well, what, how do these particular kinds of groups work and how do they do history? How do they do tradition? And uh, so I, I came upon Andrew Shryock's book, uh, book on the uh, Bedouin of Jordan and uh, other things related to it that deal with uh, these kinds of clan groups with very with, they they do have a lot of focus on genealogical relationships between these different groups, and then their history is done genealogically. It's connected to the genealogies in such a way that you unpack the stories around the people in the genealogies. This is called genealogical history, and uh, this is a kind of history that's different than our political histories, and we need to see that that's the kind of history that's being done in the patriarchal narratives. That's that's my approach uh, based upon trying to find out how to approach this thing from the nature of the material, uh, the very nature of the kind of material that it is. What would be its prehistory? How would these traditions be come into writing and so on? And this was all part of, of trying to meet the text um, where it is in terms of what it's describing and the kind of world that it speaks from and into. 
Now, given the title of your book, A Paradigm Change in Pentateuchal Research, this question may come as an underhand pitch, but what do you hope this book will accomplish? I hope this book accomplishes just kind of a note being made in the field that there's a group of scholars out here who are functioning, trying to do serious work in compositional issues for the Pentateuch and pushing back against both neo-documentary and redaction-critical approaches uh, to the composition of the Pentateuch because they see real problems with what they're doing. Uh, So I hope we're viewed as people who are doing serious work and, and trying to engage with the issues that they're looking at in the text uh, and trying to not just criticize, but but actually make positive proposals about how the text did come together compositionally. Uh, so it's not just criticizing, but it's trying to build, do positive scholarly uh, understanding based upon what the text actually presents and, and letting that drive the way we come at this issue of composition of the Pentateuch. I know that there's going to be rather... Hmm, I don't know what the right word is, but but uh, substantial pushback on moving away because that's always what happens when you have paradigm changes. There's a lot of pushback. It just comes with the territory. And so I hope that at least it gets a fair hearing. And uh, that's, that's, that's up in the air yet. Will it get a fair hearing? We'll have to see uh, because we are walking right into kind of a lion's den of critical approaches that really does, you know, is committed to their approach. Dick, are you and the other authors planning any future meetings or publications to address this issue further? I don't know if we'll have future meetings at Basel or not, but I know that there are future meetings. Uh, We've had two previous meetings at Andrews University in Michigan And another one's coming up in uh, September of 2020, in which other publications are coming out. And some of us are cooperating together in both of these environments, and others are separate to each one. So uh, I think what's what's happening is that there is a growing team of people from across the spectrum, of people who just uh, find the way the work has been done, unsatisfactory, and therefore want to team up to really uh, propose something different and show the problems and propose something that maybe goes in a better direction. Well, Dick, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. It's been very enlightening and all the best to you. Oh, thank you. I've enjoyed talking about it with you. All right, friends, you've been listening to New Books in Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. Until next time, goodbye.
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.